to the Shorenstein Center on Media, Politics, and Public Policy at the Harvard Kennedy School. For more on events, news, and research, visit us at shorensteincenter.org. If I could uh, call us to order, uh, it is my great pleasure to welcome back to the Shorenstein Center Nachman, is that the correct way? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> trying to get a little guttural in, the, you know, in, the, in that way of uh, pronouncing an Israeli name. Uh, Nachman Shai, who came to us as a journalist and is now um, uh, a political figure in, uh, in Israel, in the Knesset, uh, now a member of the Labor Party. He's going to talk about the very interesting and fluid and confrontational and complex relationship of media uh, to politics in Israel. And Nachman, it's very good to have you with us again, and uh, welcome back. Thank you. Thank you, Alex. Um, Good afternoon, everyone. I'm very fortunate to be here. Uh, I've been here uh, generations ago, 17 years ago, and I remember every uh, single moment. I even presented a center, certain paper here about Israel. Uh, it says the spokesperson in the crossfire, a decade of uh, Israeli defense crisis. And I have uh, great memories from the time I spent here. I thank you very much, Alex and Idi and everyone in the room. I'd like to speak about uh, the media and Israel's uh, public diplomacy. Hi, how are you? This is my former neighbor. <laughs> yes, how are you? Uh, and I also would like to take this opportunity to introduce a friend of mine, Jay Ruderman. He's the president of the Ruderman Family Foundation. He's from Boston originally, but uh, he moved to Israel, married an Israeli, and he's doing extremely important uh, things, uh, both with the Israeli uh, uh, political world and with disab- disabled people, both in Israel and here in, uh, in America. And this is something I have to praise very much. I'm here in a Welcome group of... Welcome back to you, too, then. Thank you. To Boston. I'm in a group of uh, six Knesset members who came from Israel to, uh, through this uh, foundation to learn about American Jewry uh, and to uh, deepen uh, their uh, understanding of how complex this uh, issue is. About a month ago, um, Israel intercepted a cargo ship uh, carrying a Panama, uh, Panama flag in the, in the Red Sea. It was like 1,000 miles away from Israeli territory. Using a precise combination of intelligence, uh, information, and operational ability, uh, we managed to uncover the plan of to struggle into the Gaza, uh, 40 rockets with a 60-mile uh, range that could uh, easily hit uh, uh, deep into Israel. It was an amazing achievement uh, that illustrated the abilities of a sophisticated technological power like, like Israel. Two weeks ago, uh, a barrage of uh, over 100 uh, rockets was fired into Israel from Gaza, endangering some million Israelis. The rocket is extremely unsophisticated, uh, those rockets. They worth like 500 uh, US dollars each. They, launched in, uh, they were launched indiscriminately by terrorists, sporadically hitting random Israeli citizens. And they were retaliated as usual, and you know this uh, circle of uh, violence, and it ended this way or another. What I wanted to um, illustrate here, here is the question of uh, asymmetric uh, um, confrontation between two powers. 
the one that can intercept uh, a, 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 a ship in the far distance from Israel, which is not easy at all. And on the other hand, which has to struggle with very primitive rockets fired at its own territory. And then we developed our, through your assistance, not Howard, but uh, in general, uh, the American administration, a certain uh, iron uh, dome uh, batteries and missiles that can intercept those incoming rockets. The only difference is that the one are, are, which are fired into Israel cost 500 uh, US dollars, and ours, <clears throat> like 50,000 each. Okay, so we hit 500 by 50,000. It shows 50,000. No, sorry, 5,000. 5,000, so 10 times. I mean, there's nothing to compare, but it's um, asymmetric. Um, Since the end of the Second World War, there have been dozens of military confrontations, the vast majority between states and terrorist guerrilla organizations. This is the new form of warfare. And the era of the great wars, such as the First and the Second World War, is over. <clears throat> in the new world, the result is apparently predictable. The strong side, well, i.e. the state, if it's Israel or the United States or Britain, Great Britain, will win. But, and the other weak so-called uh, party will lose. But it doesn't work uh, this way. And, uh, and the other side, the, the, the weak party, knows how to take advantage of so-called his weaknesses, in order to carry the message and to cause uh, casualties to the, strong, uh, to the strong side. And this side, by the way, this party, has no constraints, neither in place, nor in time, <clears throat> nor in modus operandi. Anything goes. And facing them is a, is a, is a society uh, based on democratic values, yours, like ours, which respects human rights, and thus society whose hands are tied. That is the conflict between Israel and the Hamas in the the south, the Hezbollah in the north, and this is the conflict that you have uh, in the Taliban in Afghanistan or before in in Iraq. Western democracies find themselves frustrated and frequently helpless. The small, the uh, elusive enemies cause hits and wrecks up points. How come? Because this is the new battle, the battle over the hearts and minds, which cannot be determined in the battlefield. There's no battlefield any longer, or by the number of casualties, but by the way it's engraved in our perception. The Palestinians have failed in their violent conflict with Israel for the entire history. But they have learned over the decades, and especially after two intifadas, that they cannot hurt Israel's national resilience, but they can hit the Israeli home front. And Israel, which has come out victorious in all of these confrontations, came out also frustrated because we could not stop it totally. And also we are faced now, as I said before, by them shifting the confrontation with Israel from the battlefield to an endless number of battlefields. What are the new battlefields? This is the world of diplomacy, the political world, the, the economic world, the um, legal world, and so on and so forth. All of them are now open for them. And if they fail to so-called to kill or to um, cause some damage 
to Israel or to Israeli civilians, they can choose other ways in order to hurt uh, Israel. And this is the new uh, uh, strategy chosen by them, uh, which moves the struggle to the other fronts. So it's not only any longer a single front, but a variety of fronts between Israel and the Palestinians. The new campaign against Israel is called uh, BDS, Boycotts, Divestment, and Sanctions. It joins the attempts to bring Israel uh, politicians and senior officials to the International Court of Justice in The Hague on war crimes charges. And this is the lawfare. Another initiative is to give Palestine, uh, Palestine state status in the United Nations and international institutions. The goal is to impose a cultural and economic siege on Israel and to hurt its international ties. The leaders of the BDS believe that a delegitimization campaign against Israel, similar, similar to the one against South Africa in the past, will bring Israel down. Thus, we find ourselves, we Israel now, once again in a war of survival, but of a different kind, with diverse aspects. On each of these fronts, a strange, co a strange coalition has been formed with factors of the extreme left on the one side and Islamic organizations on the other. The common denominator is the hatred and animosity towards Israel. In political science terms, which hopefully you're familiar with because it was invented here, Israel finds itself no longer confronted this new coalition on the front of hard power, but in the new world of soft power. Israel's non-military capabilities, its thriving economy, and impressive high-tech and scientific achievements constitute its hard power. Fine. But the battle has moved to the world of soft power, where Israel must some showcase its civil abilities, its values, particularly democracy, its moral standards, its cultural world, and its social and humanitarian achievements. These elements indeed exist in the narrative of the State of Israel, but they have always served as a components or additions to the overall story. They have never been the only story, the very front. The transformation that Israel is going through is similar to the experience of other Western liberal, liberal democracies, such as the United States, that understood, that understood that military and economic power are not enough in and of themselves. And that is also necessary to start using their soft power. The American campaign, based on this theory, was launched after the attack on the twins, uh, Twin Towers in uh, 2001. There are, of course, significant differences between the United States and Israel that we both understand. There are some things superpower can do that are forbidden to small states, as we have recently seen in the Crimea. If the U.S. can and wants to use force, the world accepts it and may even expect it. In the case of Israel, it is clear that any use of force will be met with opposition, criticism, and control. <coughs> the battle for the hearts and minds is waged in the media, in the help of the media and on the pages and screens of the media. There is a strong connection between the two. Just as this new warfare is the product of processes that have been evolving in the diplomatic arena on one hand and the field of conflict on the other hand, so the media in the 21st century has undergone a transformation and is totally different from the media we knew some, um, uh, some 20 or 30 years ago. 
In other words, the struggle over the heart of the media must also change. Since the media is different and its modus operandi and needs are not the same as in the past. The principle, however, has stayed the same, two-phase communication. The first phase consists of an effort to have the media convey your message to wide audiences and to convince them that you are in the right. In the second phase, public opinion will influence the government to take a sympathetic stand and to show support for your position. In the Palestinian-Israeli conflict, Israel used to enjoy a monopoly over the flow of information. For years, it succeeded to dictating the way in which information was portrayed in the media, thanks both to its technological ability and to its high level of reliability. But the Palestinians have learned to play the game. For the mid, from the mid-80s, they developed communication perception that gradually succeeded in convincing the media that there are two sides to the conflict. They acquired mini cameras, disseminated information by themselves, built relations with journalists and media organizations, and created an alternative source of information to the Israeli one. They chose to preempt uh, Israel uh, battlefield information, even if their information was unfounded and was not reliable. And thus, their version came out in the press and the TV channel first, and Israel lagged behind. Moreover, the Palestinians dictated new rules of the game, which were contrary to the journalistic ethics. They forced their story, their version, on them, on the media, and even used threats and force against the media. Unfortunately, unfortunately the media were willing to adopt and obey uh, they were willing to adopt and obey these orders that came from the Palestinian side in order to gain access or ex exclusivity on the news stories. The present phase in the battle over the media <coughs> is taking place in a world of the web. This world, by virtue of its nature, reduces the power of the central media or, in more familiar terms, reduces the CNN effect and strengthens new players joining in over, joining in in over the, the web. The internet has created endless sources of information. I don't have to tell you that. Analysis, evaluation, and opinion. They have unlimited distribution, and there is no longer the ability to focus on one single source or factor. The internet world is more convenient for the underdog, for the underdog, since it empowers them and significantly magnifies them vis-a-vis -vis the stronger side. A small terrorist attack with few casualties resonates extensively thanks to the widespread use of the media, both traditional and new. This attack also accelerates and ignites other systems, such as the political and economic system. If Israel retaliates, and by nature this response will be with greater force and will cause casualties among innocent, innocent people, this will result in a stronger reaction against Israel, who will be turned into the guilty party. We must also remember that the Internet is an open field for provocation, bias, lies, and psychological warfare that is difficult for a state to do. I hinted before that the change in the world of the media is not just technical and technological. The large number of players of all sorts in the media 
media arena lowers its professional standards and hurts its ethics. A large number of uh, people, users, who are not media professionals can now participate in this open arena and, that will, and, and they have their own readership, readership viewers and listeners. But they are not bound by the ethical or professional code of conduct. This would appear to be an ideal world, but to the same extent, it's a dangerous one, open for or to rumors and substantial reports and information chaos. One more comment on the media, it, by its nature, it's interested in the colorful story, in action, and yes, also in violence. Nice stories, success stories, human interest stories are less important. Israel is facing a great challenge. Its legitimacy is being threatened by many players, the vast majority of which are not state, but various types of non-governmental organizations or unidentified factors. As a state, it is hard for Israel to make the transition from institu institutionalized world, the world of diplomacy, or the world of legitimate use of force, to the open cyber, first, uh, cyber uh, space. Therefore, it must establish and adapt a public uh, diplomacy um, network that will uh, compensate for its weaknesses. And these are the uh, last few remarks I have. In my uh, doctoral thesis, and in my, uh, followed by my book uh, called The Media Wars, I presented a certain ideal uh, model for public diplomacy network that is suitable for Israel and for other liberal democracies <coughs> like, like us. The network is founded on public diplomacy molecules. A molecular is point person far away from Israel, somewhere in the world, who can successfully communicate with local opinion leaders, such as elected officials, academics, financial and economic powers, cultural heroes, and of course the media, the media itself. A molecular is a person or a group of people living in the same place or region, operating in their own close surroundings. Israel needs tens of thousands of molecules of supporters, both Jews and non-Jews, who are willing to come abroad and serve as links in this large network. Its role is to disseminate information, to hold dialogues with various local influential factors, and to send back its opinions, evaluation, and ideas to all the issues on the current agenda. A network like this is maybe the only uh, proper and well-focused answer to the challenge of the terrorist organization. Just like them, it is spread all over the world. It reaches even the smallest and farthest corners of the globe and encompasses a variety of fronts. In short, quantity versus quantity. The new perception is taking root because it is the only one that can function in the world of the new media. Gradually, layer by layer, Israel is building the global network to support it in its conflict with terrorist organization and their accomplices. I'm not naive. I hope so. I know that as successful as much an organization may be, it's not enough. The question, of course, is what will flow in the veins of the system when, it will be when and when it will be fully established. And here I return to the same vital, delicate, ba delicate balance between hard power and soft power, what uh, Professor John Nye called smart power. Israel must find the middle road between these two powers. Neither one can win on its own. 
but the combination between them could marginalize terrorism in particular and Israel adversaries in general on the one hand, and on the other hand, consolidate Israel's regional and international status as a stable, democratic, peace-loving state that upholds and defends human and civil rights as we are. That is what we are striving towards. Thank you very much again, and I'm open for questions. Thank you. <coughs> Thank you. Thank you. <coughs> Let me ask you the, the first question, if I may. Uh, in, in, in your analysis, you've made it uh, a matter of a media strategy <clears throat> that would be something that would be very uh, significant for Israel, as you frame it, winning in this situation. But you didn't talk at all about the reality on the ground and how changing that could affect the perception of Israel, for instance, the issue of uh, the you know the, the the West Bank and the, uh, the the various you know Israeli you know expansion into that area, it would seem to me that when you're talking about a a, a media operation like you're describing, the the back and forth of a media image making is going to be secondary always to what is the reality on the ground, and that seems to be where the sticking point is. We were talking before we came in about the <coughs> probable release of uh, Mr. Pollard, who is a guy who's been in jail in this country for 29 years and is about to be released. He's going to be released, apparently, in hopes that this will facilitate just exactly what I said, a change on the ground in some fashion. Uh, how do you factor that into what you're, what you're the way you look at the, the yeah, realities. Of course. I said at the end of my uh, presentation that I'm not naive. I know that organizational changes will not be sufficient. We have uh, also to change, uh, to, uh, in a way, our policy towards the territories and finally reach the only solution that I believe in, which is two nation states for two people. I have no doubt about it. Uh, the organization I described will be helpful and it goes, it will work well for the short uh, or the, uh, for short term or midterm. But for the long term, I've no doubt that we'll have to reach an agreement between us and the Palestinians, which is a separation of between them and us. We will have our state, they will have theirs. Uh, we, we, you rightly mentioned the polar. This is now a very crucial point negotiated at these hours, uh, uh, this time in Israel between Kerry and, and, and Netanyahu. Trying to reach an and the Palestinian trying to reach an agreement, how to extend the negotiation. Uh, that's extremely important. I hope it will it will be done. Uh, I, I'm not excluding the political uh, uh, solution. That's part of it. But if you don't introduce a, a certain uh, what I suggest, a certain a, a, a mechanism, how to uh, fight against and how to uh, deter uh, this uh, BDS campaign against Israel or the lawfare against Israel, uh, then you will have to make concessions. It will weaken you at the end of the day. The delegitimization process of Israel will succeed if we don't uh, challenge it right now in all over the world. So I'm not saying we don't have it. It's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's an operation that should be done by, by, by both hands. One hand will deal with the constant threats on Israel, all kinds of, and the other will uh, finally shake hands with the Palestinian origin agreement. That should be done simultaneously. 
if <clears throat> given that this turn with Pollard is something that seems to have come out of the blue, um, but is timely, we would hope, does it portend that there is some genuine expectation that this time there may be a significant breakthrough? First of all, uh, we have to extend the negotiation because it expires now. After nine months, not very much was uh, achieved, and, uh, and we would <coughs> like to at least to get another six months of negotiation, at least going beyond the, general, the UN General Assembly because we don't want to see the Palestinians being admitted to the, uh, to the UN. That's the point. And I'm not sure that Kerry, in a close meeting like that, doesn't tell Netanyahu that he's not able any longer to stop this move to uh, accept uh, the Palestinians as a state to the UN. I'm not sure he doesn't tell him that. that they, they have, you have done a lot uh, two, three years ago when they, tried, when they first tried, but maybe something has now changed, and maybe it has to do with the American-Russian relations, that maybe Russia now, as, as, a, as an attempt to retaliate against America, will choose the Palestinians as a, as a soft target to exercise some, uh, you know, uh, mm -hmm. some Russian uh, input in, in international politics. Uh, that can be done. We know the Russians. So uh, that may be one of the reasons that Netanyahu agreed. We are doing something that we have never done before. Not only that we are going to release over 100 uh, murderers from jail. I'm, I'm speaking murderers. They are not just criminals. They are murderers. Those, all of them have red hands. Uh, we are also going to release Israeli Arabs, Israeli citizens, okay, by Arab nationality that are jailed in Israel for many years and they are going also to be released very soon. Uh, I don't know how, how much you are aware of it, but that means that if Abu Mazen, which is currently the president or the leader of the Palestinian Authority, is asking to release Israeli Arabs from jail, he's positioning himself as the leader of the entire Arab community living between the Mediterranean and the Jordan River. Because next time, you will ask Kerry that they will build a, a, a road in the Galilee for the Israeli Arabs. They said, I'm, I'm the representative. Don't you remember that a few months ago, Israeli Arabs were released from jail upon my request? So I feel myself now as the leader of the entire Arab population living in these territories, and I have my own position. And maybe next time you will have an, a party in the Israeli Knesset, this is democracy, that will be identified, totally identified, with the, with the Palestinians. This is a precedent, very important precedent. It's going to be set by Netanyahu from all people on earth. Netanyahu and me are not uh, in the same party as you may imagine. I, I'm Labour and he's Likud. And we, we totally disagree on many issues. And I'm surprised to see suddenly Netanyahu joining me in my position. This is not Netanyahu and you until recently. In an article which will appear tomorrow in one of the Israeli newspapers, I said that he crossed the Rubicon. He crossed the Rubicon because if he is ready to freeze settlements, to release uh, those Israeli Arabs, and also another group of 500 Palestinians from jail, he's going to do things that haven't been done by him. Previous Israeli leaders did. Olma did, Sharon did, Rabin did, but never Netanyahu. <laughs> so maybe there is a kind of a, an historic change here. We have to witness that uh, for a long time. Maybe it's just uh, a certain crisis. But something is going on here that I advise you to open your eyes and watch very carefully. Is this, is this calculated 
to enhance the prestige and power of the Palestinian Authority versus Hamas? One of those, yes. In a way, yes. We would like, once we are playing the game between the Hamas and the Palestinians living in the West Bank, um, to uh, imply that he is the leader of the entire Palestinian people, yes. Hamas is in a deep crisis right now because they were disconnected uh, from Egypt and they have uh, difficulties, economic difficulties and others. And by the way, I believe this is the, the best timing to try and dialogue with the Hamas. That's my own advice. If they are in deep trouble, because otherwise, when, you travel, when your enemy is in trouble, this is the best time to develop a dialogue with him and to see what you can do together. Um, and they are, um, in, they, they are unable to run their uh, small uh, uh, um, entity uh, very long. Unable. Let me, uh, <clears throat> let me invite students first to uh, there are students present who would like to ask a question. Uh, just indicate by raising your hand. And if not, I will just open it to the floor. Yeah. Do you see any possible compromise over this issue of declaring Israel a Jewish state? Mm -hmm. And if so, what would be the lines of this compromise? Now, in the original UN partition plan of 47, mm -hmm. reference was made to a Jewish state mm -hmm. and an Arab state. Uh, what's, what's your thoughts on this? Is it, is it going to be a, a roadblock to the current negotiations, or are they, are they going to find some way out of this? If you were Palestinian, will you accept Israel as a Jewish as a Jewish state? No. Okay, so why would you like to have peace with Israel? Because um, Jewish state means that you accept the fact that there is a Jewish state, and the <laughs> agreement that we are going to sign between the two of us will be final, and there will be no way to um, uh, repeat or to return from that uh, agreement in the future and say, well, we this was just the, the first phase. We have the West Bank, and now we continue, and uh, uh, and continue the long way we we declared long time ago, stated, and we would like to have the whole uh, Palestine back in our hands. Netanyahu, again, as I said before, I'm I'm in many issues we are, we are not sharing the same uh, opinion. I can understand why he insists on that. My my position is that he should keep it for the negotiation itself not to make it a precondition, but that's a, but that's a tactical issue. It's not, it's not uh, an ideological one. When it comes to the question of a Jewish state, the Palestinians should accept, as we do with their state too. We expect uh, the world and ourselves to accept the, first, the, world, the, the, the fact that there is a, Palest a state by the name Palestine, and this is the state of the Palestinians from all over the world. They are invited to come <laughs> back and live in their own territory, but not to the territory of the Jewish state. The Jewish state will remain, uh, as much as we can, a Jewish democratic one with a majority of 80 or 75 percent of Jews and 20, 25 percent Arab. That's all right. By the way, one of the reasons I fully support and doing my best to promote the separation of us between us and the Palestinians that I don't want that my granddaughters or my grandchildren will live in a state which will be uh, one state for two people because I don't believe they, that these two people can live peacefully one with the other. And you haven't heard me saying the word peace so far because I don't very much believe in peace. 
I believe that we can live next to the Palestinians and they can live next to us in a, in a defensible border. That's the future. And for the far future, we'll see. So his, this requirement of Netanyahu uh, was uh, justified and is justified. But at the same time, I will advise him to wait till the negotiation finally starts and then we can word up. By the way, 15, 20 years ago, uh, Arafat did accept Israel as a Jewish state. So Abu Mazen doesn't have to work too hard. He just has to repeat on what Arafat said at the time. But they can find, you can find ways. If you release Pollard from jail, believe me, you can solve this issue too. It was much harder, and it is much harder to convince uh, the Defense and Intelligence uh, Administration in Washington to release Pollard, believe me, than to go over this issue. Really? Yes, I think so. Yeah, yeah. Because there's a strong opposition. There's been, there's been a strong opposition for years until some of the heroes just disappeared, like <laughs> Weinberger and others. They never let the president discuss Pollard in any previous attempt with Israeli leaders, even to raise Pollard. They said they, even now, I don't know what, at the time they said we are going to resign if you release Pollard from jail. And you should know there's no any other American citizen who has been serving in jail for 29 years like Pollard for the same felony. Others served for two years, five years, seven years, and they were all released. He's the only one who has been in jail almost 30 years. Yes. Um, I was uh, part of a group of students that recently came back from Israel and Palestine. You came? Yeah. Okay. Uh, we had two different tracks. One was focused on Israel and the other one was on Palestine. So I went to the one on Palestine, which had a... Too bad. Why didn't you come to Israel? <laughs> we landed in Israel. Ah, and then you separated? <laughs> yeah, we had to oh, sort of... Yeah, too we, bad. We, we were based out of Ramallah for the most part. Okay. So I have a lot of things that I was exposed to for the first time and I'm still sorting them out. But, you know, this provides a lot of context of the Israeli perspective. So building on the previous question... Um, I learned from Palestinians that there are three main concerns that they have. The first is ending occupation. Um, the second is return of refugees. And third is the fate of Palestinian, you call them Israeli Arabs, in Israel right now. So I guess I have like short questions about each of them. I know Israel refers to a lot of the West Bank as disputed territories, but we got to walk through certain checkpoints which were extremely narrow, and it's hard not to think of them as occupied territories. So I would love for you to comment on the semantics of this, do you consider them occupied territories or do you really believe they're disputed territories? Secondly, the right of return. It's really hard to imagine millions of people returning to Israel, be it, especially if we go with the two-state solution. Um, so on the ground, the sense we got is that a lot of Palestinians have lost hope of a two-state solution because you mentioned the wall as well. I mean, a lot of it encroaches on a lot of what was supposed to be the West Bank. We saw the wall cutting into east of the Green Line in many places, if you could speak on the wall as well as that. And thirdly, the fate of uh, Muslims, Arabs on the Israeli side, um, if you could comment on laws in Israel, which is a democratic country, but apparently discriminates against non-Jews, I mean, that's what we heard on the Palestinian side, but I would love to hear what you have to say about some of those laws that apparently even... And what I found fascinating is um, there's a distinction in Israel between citizenship and nationality. So Israel recognizes many nationalities except Israeli nationality because that would mean that Jews and non-Jews would be equal, but the laws, the way they're stated right now, make that distinction somehow. So I would love to understand that a little better. 
Okay, you have many questions. I'll try to address them all. No, that's all right. That's why I said you better come to Israel next time, and some of the questions will be answered by the very fact that you will tour Israel and, and uh, then go to the Palestinian Authority. I have no objection. You can go anywhere you want. Um, now, um, I, I will start with the last remark. I think uh, that uh, Israelis, Christians, Muslims, Druze, Turks are all equal, are all equal. Uh, some have better lives, some have worse, but that's, an, that's another issue that has to do with economics and better opportunities, which we are working very hard, hard on. And I am one of those who said that we have to invest much more in the Arab sector, in the, in the Druze sector, in order to uh, make uh, opportunities equal to every, every young man and, and, and woman, that's for sure. But at the same time, when it comes to law, everyone is equal. And uh, that will be the case. That's why I insist on living in a democratic state. That's why I, I do everything I can as long as I'm in politics, as wherever I'll be, that this country will remain democracy. The major threat to Israel is that if we are not democracy any longer, that if we continue to control the life of millions of Arabs without giving them the right to vote and, and, and be elected, then, then it's not democracy. And that's why I don't want to occupy, to continue to occupy the territories or I don't want to annex the territories. I don't want to annex the territories. And I will return to the Palestinian 97, 90% of, their, of, of, of this territory in order to install their own state. Then the rest 10% will be just an exchange of territories between them and us, so they will have the 100% that they so-called had before 67. And you know that they've never had a state in their entire history. So... Uh, there's no uh, problem with the with with this. Of course, again, I'm saying we have to invest more, and and hopefully we will. By the way, because Israeli Arabs uh, should integrate to the general society, <coughs> they have a lot to offer. There are issues, you know, with Arab women that uh, are much more conservative and they are not able to, in many cases, to work. So unemployment is extremely high, like 60, 70 percent within Arab females. So we have to let them exercise, I mean, all kind of jobs within their villages or neighborhoods that they are not able to travel too far. It's a, it's a matter of the, how the society and the families are, are built, and, and we are not going to, uh, to change that too. The fence that you saw somewhere will probably, in general, will be the border between Israel and, and Palestine. That's more or less what we see as a future border. And as you notice, it's mainly along the 67 borders. Bibi doesn't like to hear the word 67 borders, and I understand why. Many of us do not. So the issue is how to make those borders defensible. But when we build the fence, which became very effective when it comes to terror, and we had, as I said before, two intifadas with the Palestinians that we won, but thousands of people paid by their lives and so on. The, 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 the defense stopped terrorism, which was crucial to us, and by the way, to the Palestinians too, because they are also bleeding as a result of Palestinians. It's not only by us, it's them too. So defense is more or less the future border. Right of return is impossible. You understand why? There are millions of people claiming to be Palestinians, third-generation Palestinians. They still claim that Acre or Haifa or Tel Aviv or Jaffa or Jerusalem is their own hometown, no longer. If you look at it in a in different way, there were over one million Jews who were forced out of their own uh, 
former Arab uh, states when they lose to leave and when they were born and so on. And they were kicked out in the early, at the end of 40s, you mentioned 47, and the beginning of the 50s, last century, and found themselves found themselves in Israel, found their way to Israel. This was an exchange of population. It was not done like in other uh, regions in, in the world, but it was, in a way, a kind of one million Palestinians left, one, one, one million uh, Jews came to Israel. We don't see any chance for Palestinian refugees to come back to the places they want to. But if they decide finally to move to the Palestinian ter- uh, authority or the future Palestinian state, we have no objection. But we would not let them come to what they claim is their old uh, territory, old homes or country, because then there'll be no room for us there. It's a very question of survival. Where will we be? I mean, we have over 8 million Israelis now, 6.5 million Jews and over 1.5 million Arabs. I don't expect this Arab population to grow uh, four, five, six million because then it will, again, will not be a Jewish state. It will be two st- one state for two people, and one state for two people has no chance to survive. Uh, by the way, there are more Israelis and more Palestinians that would like to see one state for two people, but that's the worst uh, solution I can think about, the worst solution I can think about. And the word occupation, would you like me to use it? If it helps you, I can use it. I don't like the word occupation. I think we are holding the territories, administrating the old territories, and finally we'll return the territories. I don't want to continue this occupation. I don't want to stay in the territories for long. Although, historically, biblically, they belong to the Jewish people. But we live in the year 2014, and we cannot relate to the Bible as an international uh, document any longer. I wish, but it's too, too late. Again, there are hundreds of thousands of Israelis, if not millions, that claim that these territories will belong to us forever. I'm not one of them. Thank you. Other questions? <clears throat> yes, sir. My name is Yuri Zulk. I'm an Israeli student at Kennedy School, and I was a co-organizer of the Israel track. What's your name? Yariv Zultan. When you were of the UGC, I was marketing director of the Jewish Agency many years ago. Um, thank you for the question, because I think it really shows the different narratives of people here all over. Mm-hmm. And uh, I've spent the last eight years in Europe fighting against some, some narratives. I think that you pinpointed many things what Israel could do. The fact on the ground is and I'm saying it with, with sadness and sorrow, we are losing the battle. We are losing the battle in the Kennedy School, we are losing the battle in Europe, we are losing the battle, I've been in this field for 20 years. You see, you see the degradation all over. You see it with the non-Jewish communities, you see it with the Jewish communities, very often, which for different reasons, uh, and I'm not pointing fingers, it's, it's self-explanatory, feel that it's not very convenient to defend Israel. My feeling, and I'm talking to you as, as a member of the Knesset now, not the not academic position, is my feeling as an Israeli who lives for now for nine years and coming back home this summer, is that I feel that legislators in Israel and politicians and parties are totally detached from the reality. There's one thing which is lip service, which I respect as part of the game. We see as people who live in different parts of the world too few actions and involvement in real life, as you mentioned, on the ground. And I think that the battle is not in Israel or the West Bank, the battle is worldwide. 
and I think they're losing the battle. Um, if, if you listen to my presentation, uh, you saw that we are not too far from each other. I understand that. And I've been watching that situation closely because I'm, uh, I'm older than you, and I've been around for many years. And I saw, uh, I remember the past, and I see the, the present, and I'm concerned about the future. And that's why I'm trying to see this change happening as soon as possible. I speak a lot about that in Israel. I was um, on the media, wherever I can, and in the Knesset, of course, uh, in any, any given opportunity. And I warn my colleagues that uh, if, we can't, if we don't stop it now, it will get worse. I'm not sure Israel will be uh, declared as an apartheid state. That will take uh, a long time. But the BDS will finally have, will have its own impact on, on Israel, even if we succeed to block it in this country. But here and there in Europe, especially in Europe, and in other parts of the world, it may succeed. It may impose section pressure on Israel. And that's what I'm doing as a politician. I think that this is my role. Uh, and I also, also try to convey to other colleagues of mine uh, we, uh, Jay Ruderman, who is now coming back, uh, has, has been, uh, as I said before, bringing now for the same time Israeli uh, politicians, Knesset members, to this country, which is not the worst enemy of Israel in the world, as you may guess. Okay, But even here, they hear uh, different opinions that they are used to. Uh, am I right, uh, Jay? Okay. Uh, you can tell you a little bit about this experience. It's like exposing Israeli politicians to different points of views. And that's what we, we have to do if we want them to understand the world they live in. Uh, usually we are open-minded, we read, we, we watch the news, we, we, we travel a lot, so we, are, we understand the world. But I think that things are going on, and it's hard to follow processes. You can see certain event, but you never see the process which led to this event until it finally happens. And, and I'm one of the voices that keep saying that in Israel, if you won't watch the, the, the processes, we one day will be surprised. And we are surprised already. I think that one of the reasons, I said that before, that Netanyahu agrees to those unprecedented concessions is that he was told by the Americans that maybe the coalition they had three years ago blocking the Palestinians from becoming member state at the UN is impossible this time. And he has to understand it. And by the way, Netanyahu knows this country pretty well, and he knows the world. I have never voted for him, but I appreciate his uh, knowledge and, and ability to run this uh, complex country. So I think that, that our experience here, which is only covering Boston, New York, a little bit of the Jewish community, and some American politicians, is a way to bring Israeli politicians into this world. That Israel is not living by itself, cannot live isolated, not in the world that two-thirds of our economy is totally dependent on export. Where will we go if we cannot sell our products to Europe and to America? We go some other places, but the major business we have is with this country and, and Europe. And if for any reason those markets will be close to us, where will we go? And economically, you know, we are doing very well. Yes. I know your background at the media, and I'm interested uh, to know, um, I understood that we talked about the trek that came to e Israel and Palestine just a few weeks ago. And um, when I got you know, feedback from people from the Palestinian trek, 
very good friends of mine. Um, I asked them this really just one question. Did you know that two days before you got there, there were 60 rockets that mm -hmm. you, you were um, yeah. sent? Yes. Which I just talked about. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And there was no cover of it in any of the media here. And I was asking them, some of them talked like, talk to me about all kinds of suffering that Palestinian kids has to suffer. And I totally understand it, but I asked them, you know, you know Halloween here, you know? We have Purim, some of you even attended some Purim event, and do you know what it means for kids not, you know, not to go to, to parades, not to yeah. get costumes, because they have to stay in shelters? And how would your sovereign state react to that? And they said, I mean, the best answer I got was, well, it's something to think about, but they didn't really know about it. So how do we deliver it? How do we get the media to cover it just as it covers other issues in, you know, in the Middle East? Why is that something that nobody can, can see? And I had yes. to find, you know, in the Israeli media, just, you know, sh like covered, the, the media covered it in English to yeah. send it to them, to show them that I'm not making it up. So I, I said before, Mari, that uh, we have so-called problems with the media. It's a non-story any longer. There are 170,000 rockets. I repeat on this figure. 170,000 rockets uh, that are targeted at Israel in any given moment. With all the Iron Dome batteries that we have, and those that you just allocated the money, we've just, you, not you personally, not the Harvard School, mm -hmm. uh, gave us another $429 million last week to build another 10 batteries. It will not be sufficient to intercept 1,000 rockets when they are fired at one given moment, and there are 170,000. But it's not story because people are, seems like have no interest in that, and the media has no interest. We are trying to sell it and to resell it, and they said, well, okay, we know the story, but why don't you do this and why do you do that? It's a reality in Israel. We accept. That's why I said we do have to launch this war on hearts and minds. We cannot stop it. I don't want to lose. We deal with two wars or two struggles at the same time. But we have to carry the story. We have to carry the message. We have to show people what kind of life Israelis have in the South and, and what's the reality of kids that would like to go to a, parade, a Purim parade and are unable to get out of their house. And you sit in a, in a Knesset meeting and there is a siren in the South and uh, we just and we, and we look at each other. We know exactly what will happen. In two minutes, parents will leave their uh, w uh, working places, wherever they are, and they will rush to schools and will pick up their kids and go home and keep them in the bomb shelter in a minute. And uh, it easily stops the life of, of millions of Israelis. That's why I said this is asymmetric, because we don't do the same to the Palestinians with all the criticism in the world. We, were, we do... Uh, whatever we, we militarily do is so accurate that you cannot imagine what it means. You cannot imagine what it means how to hit a certain target without getting to anyone in the surrounding, which is like 10 or 20 kilo, uh, meters from that very point. And that's why in the past uh, two, three years, no other people were hurt except those terrorists that were on the way to uh, carry a, a certain attack on Israel. But this story is untold, and I, and I said before, I have a lot to say about the world, the, the, the fact that how the media functions in our, our region. Tom. By one o'clock, we're going to be finished, right? Yeah. Okay, so I'll take all the questions that I see. Yes, Tom. Uh, no, yes, sir. Welcome back. Thank you. I'm ready to stay here, believe me. Much easier <laughs> than 
functioning as a Knesset member. So, you know, I think the greatest uh, enemy of, of soft power in the U.S. is our use of hard power. Uh, that too often the, the messages that come out of those two types of uh, international action really are contradictory. And uh, I think that Israel is, is kind of locked in that same kind of position. I know that you think that We've got to build the soft power infrastructure. I agree with that. Yeah. Uh, I guess I kind of disagree with your sense that it can work in the short and medium term uh, without a settlement. I, I, I just kind of hard. I, I just find it a little hard to imagine that it would be very effective. Right? Yeah. But then, if you get the settlement, it strikes me that you have some real soft power challenges. That in some ways, the soft power challenge doesn't end with the settlement. And I and I wonder to what degree Yeah, but, but don't you think that if we finally, hopefully, solve this long-time conflict between us and the Palestinians, it will make our life uh, easier? Don't you think so? And then we can... Absolutely. Yeah. But, but there will be new challenges that come. Yeah, I, I, I guess. But, but, but then we will have more um, uh, energy to invest in our soft power. We are doing very well on our soft power, but it's not enough because most of the emphasis is on our hard power. And we will continue to invest on hard power. But still, I believe that marketing Israel as a country of uh, ideals, of, of, uh, of uh, moral le- values, of um, high-tech and so on, has so much to offer to the very region we live in, to the Palestinians themselves, uh, to the Arab world, and to the world as a whole. We are doing very well in terms of innovation. Very well. You know, you, every once in a while, Americans are coming to Israel and buying a certain Israeli company by between five to billion U.S. dollars a year now, a year. Scores of companies are being sold to the Americans. This is the new imperialism, you know. You're coming and buy us and you take us. The point is that you are taking our best minds to, uh, to the Silicon Valley. We would like them to stay in Israel, but we produce new ones. Uh, so uh, that's part of it. So I believe we, should, we can play both soft and hard power. And that's why I said, finally, let's have smart power. Because what I expect Israeli leaders is to be smart. Sometimes they are, sometimes less. Jill, did you have a question? Yeah, I just a very brief one. It's, I just wanted to pick up on what you talked uh, My area of interest, I'm a fellow here, mm-hmm. is in uh, Russia. And you made that glancing reference to the Palestinians, to Russia, mm. perhaps changing their position a little bit. Um, I did, if you could expand upon that, I'm very interested in that, um, precisely in uh, reference to Crimea and this new thrust by the Russians talking about self-determination. I can't help thinking, of course, that there are a million Russian speakers, at least in Israel. Very powerful. Do, yes. Do you anticipate any, <laughs> dare I use the word, stirring up of people? or? Uh, but that would be just a secondary question. But really, it's this your reference to the, what they might try to do with Palestinians. For the for, for the time being, uh, Russia is a partner in all the international effort, uh, efforts to bring uh, a kind of solution, uh, uh, long time solution, long time solution, long status solution to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. They are very cooperative. And they uh, share the same view, more or less, with the Americans. <coughs> My concern is that maybe at this stage, 
since there is a new tension between these uh, two superpowers, they will uh, choose to uh, depart from these international uh, um, bodies, whoever they are at the UN or the five uh, um, major powers and so on, and to fully support the Palestinians. And that will bring uh, the old good times of uh, West uh, versus East also between us and the Palestinians. I believe there's, that America is the only power that can finally resolve this uh, conflict. Only America, only the United States. And that's why I appreciate what John Kerry is doing very much. I don't see the Russians coming, but who knows? I, I can talk to you about that. Thank you. Yeah, hi, yes. uh, I'm, I'm Diane McGuire. I'm a uh, fellow here. I'm a journalist. Um, and I'm just going to pick up on what Tom said. Um, you know, we're talking in terms of winning and losing. Mm-hmm. But I think the, the uh, outcome of this asymmetric power is that the weaker forces cause the stronger forces to the liberal democratic societies, as you call them, to betray their own values yes. and turn their backs on their, on their principles. And that's what's happening here, and that's what happened, is happening in Israel, and that's why it's hard to sell the narrative, you know, because it's the expectations are so much higher of us, and so that people don't bring the same standards, you know, especially to the, to the underdog. So that's, you know, so when I, and when I hear you, as a journalist, let, I'll just tell you that I would bristle with your, with your, at your message, you know, especially if you say things like, that a journalist have have obey accepted and obeyed orders from the Palestinian yeah, side. They did. You know, I've, I well, just just who? saying, don't don't say that to journalists because oh. we kind of pride ourselves on not being obedient. And uh, I know that I know that we're lemmings to a certain extent, but um, I never forget where I came from. Believe me, uh, they were they are and they were proved uh, in this uh, uh, Israeli-U.S. Uh, Israeli-Palestinian conflict where. Uh, as a result or as a condition for getting an access to or an exclusive story, they paid by uh, their ethics, and, and uh, there's no doubt about it. It's, it's, in, it's in writing. And I know it, it may uh, uh, cause me some um, well, When you damage. say it, I would urge you to say who instead of journalists. No, no, we have, I, I can provide you with some cases that uh, we, have, uh, we have a certain letter written at the time by an Italian journalist uh, to the Palestinian Authority this was after the lynch of Israeli two Israeli soldiers in Ramallah. It's one of the case studies in my in my book in my uh, in my PhD. So I did research it as much as possible. There's no doubt that the, that the Italian journalist sent a letter to the Palestinian Authority saying, "Don't blame me for what happened uh, in Ramallah. I'm not the source of information that finally disclosed what happened there, and that it was you Palestinians lynching Israeli soldiers because I totally obeyed to the agreement signed between us." which means then this and that, and it's in writing. He was immediately kicked out. He was called back by his news organization, I think it was Channel 5 or whatever, to Italy because he couldn't stay in this region any longer. But he did disclose there was a certain, and there were other cases. We know how it is. Just read a, a Tom Friedman book about, uh, about Beirut at the time. Well, this was 20 years ago, a little bit longer, when he, he described what kind of life he had in Beirut and then what kind of life he had in Israel. Uh, and he, he described the, the, the pressure uh, exercised by, by terrorists on him in Beirut at the time, what and how to write and how to report about uh, the war in Lebanon at the time. It's not a big secret. It's not a big secret, and we take it into consideration. 
there's a lot more to be said on all of these issues. We don't have time because uh, Nachman has to be at a uh, place downtown at uh, 1.30. Nachman, thank you for coming. Thank, thank you, you all.